Well, our series is called Healthy. We started last week and we began with this premise that the healthier we are, the more our world expands. And well, the more unhealthy we are, the more our world shrinks. And today I want to talk about something that you don't hardly ever hear talked about in church. Mainly that's probably because most pastors struggle with this, including yours truly. But it is a complicated subject, and I think you'll feel that. I was just talking to friends before I stepped on stage, and I said, this is the most difficult message I've ever preached in 46 years of preaching. So I'm going to ask you to pray for me, because it's really important what I say, and it's important what I don't say. So I'm doing my best to stay right with Scripture. Today, we're going to be talking about eating healthy. And I need to let you know, in the essence of full disclosure, that this has been a problem for me for most of my life. Just a little backstory. This is TMI, but I want you to know where I'm coming from so that no one will feel any kind of pressure or shame or just discomfort with this message. When I graduated from high school in 1974, I weighed 155 pounds. Weight had never been a problem for me because I'd been extremely active. I, I was either in class or I was out playing some sport. And I think just because of, well, just because I was young and my metabolism was running high and I was always active, I could eat pretty much whatever I wanted to eat and I didn't gain weight. But along came college and college was a completely different animal. I need to let you know I worked my way through college. And all four years uh, at the college, I was a drive-in student, drove about 25, 30 miles to campus. All four years, I had a seven o'clock class. So I would be on the campus in the morning and then I worked in the afternoons, often until nine o'clock at night. I would come home and then study and work and write Late into the evening, I had to get back up at 5.30 in the morning. I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm just wanting you to know how different my world became after high school into college. And I was very sedentary. I worked in the mall and I was in, sold men's clothing. So I was, it was still most of the time. What really got me in trouble, though, was waking up early in the morning to drive to campus um, to get there for those 7 o'clock classes were, were the hot donuts that they had in the student union building. And I pretty well subsisted on soft drinks and donuts. And I discovered that if I ate enough donuts, the sugar rush would be enough to work. I could accommodate that 7 o'clock class. Four years of that, and just, again, just sharing my heart, I went from 155 pounds to 250 pounds in four years. And all of a sudden, I had a problem with my hands, a problem I didn't expect, a problem I didn't see coming, and definitely a problem I didn't know how to do anything with. For the next two years, after graduating from college, I was at a church in Houston, Texas, an inner city church. My weight stayed around 250. But on the last day I was in Houston, there was a going away party for me, and we were playing touch football, a lot of the students at the church, and I stepped in a hole and badly broke my right leg. By the time I came back to Fort Worth, moved back, I was, I was dealing with what had been a dislocated ankle, badly broken leg, and I was even more sedentary, and my weight ballooned up to 265 pounds. Around that time, my sister and my mom discovered a diet program that's well-known, and it was definitely in those days a very good program. And, and so just on a lark, I kind of, I never went to the meetings or never really signed up for anything. I just followed the program. And beginning in March of 1980, over the next uh, several months, by the end of the year, I'd lost 80 pounds and kept it off for the next 10 years. So for those of you who would have come to New Spring in the days, in the mid-80s when I was here, I was very thin. One more thing, I discovered running. I loved running. And every morning I would run, every evening I would run. And in 1986, the year I turned 30, I determined I was going to get back to my high school weight. And I did it. And uh, I was so proud of myself. But in 1988, a couple of things happened that changed my world. 
Again, TMI. But when I came to this church, I came in a transition process. The previous pastor had been a college professor of mine, and he was in his 60s. And so when I came here, the idea was that we would work together for a time, and then I would become lead pastor. Interestingly, he actually became my associate pastor for a number of years, and it all worked out great. But when I became lead pastor around 1988, the issue that I had at that moment was I not only had his old job, I had my job too. So in those days, I had a staff of four people. And I was very busy, and I lost all control of my schedule. Never at that, from that point on, never was there really a baked-in time of day where I could set aside for exercise. I always joke about a senior pastor's world, and I've said it's like shooting skeet. You just don't know which tower the next thing's going to come out of. So losing control of my schedule, I lost the habit that I had built. We talked about that last week. We said if you want to do your best, you have to have habits. And then on top of that, again, too much information, I used to play touch football a lot with the guys, and we play. We had a gym. We play pickup basketball oftentimes on Monday nights, and we were playing basketball one night. And interestingly enough, Joanna Gaines, who's you know Chip and Joanna on on the show, they were in our church at that time. Joanna was a little girl. Her dad was my best friend, and so we were playing basketball the night before. I had this problem I'll tell you about. We were playing basketball, and I was kidding Gerard. I said, why don't you come tomorrow and play touch football? And he said, I don't want to play touch football because I tear up my knee and I can't play basketball. Well, Gerard's a few years older than me, so I started ribbing him about being an old man. The next day, I went out to play touch football. The pass was a little bit behind me, turned around in midair to catch the pass, and came down awkwardly on my left leg. They say you could hear the ACL snap 20 yards away. And all of a sudden, I didn't have an ACL ligament. But again, this is 1988. I remember talking to the surgeon as we were getting ready to, get, to, have, to have surgery, and I'd read about how that there was a replacement ligament surgery, donor ligaments, where the, a, a, a ligament could be strung where the ACL was. Today, it's a standard operation. You see pro athletes go through this every year. And, but I asked the surgeon, I said, what about that? Oh, he said, that doesn't work. What I didn't know was he didn't know how to do it. And then from that point on until now, I don't have an ACL in my left knee. Thankfully, my ligaments are pretty stable, but that ended all lateral sports. I ended basketball, ended tennis, and a lot of the things that I enjoyed doing. So for the next years until now, weight, keeping weight off has been a huge struggle in my life. I've tried it all. You name a diet, I've tried it. I've counted points. I've eliminated this. I've eliminated that. You know, I've been through the diets that say, can't have protein, you eat carbohydrates, or you can't have carbohydrates and you can eat protein. I've learned one axiom about dieting. You cannot have the whole hamburger. You can have the bun and not the meat. You can have the meat and not the bun, but you can't have the whole hamburger. That's one thing I learned about dieting. Now, let me just bring this up to today. Last year, I'd gained a lot of weight. I talked about how I had a problem with my Achilles last year, and because of that, my life had gotten a lot more sedentary, and I was probably knocking on the door of 25, 30 pounds heavier than I am right now. And (laughs) in the spring, I could see this series coming. Now, I'm just being honest with you, probably more honest than I'm comfortable being, but hey, that's what you came for. You came to hear the truth, and I just want anyone to know who's struggling already with the topic today, I feel you. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I want you to know that you're hearing from from a fellow traveler. When I saw this healthy series coming last spring, definitely in June, I thought, how am I going to preach this series when I'm in this kind of shape? So the first thing I had, first thought, again, just keeping it real, first thought that I had was, I'm going to go on a diet, and I'm going to lose weight. But you know what it came to me, what came to me at that moment? 
That was all about how you saw me. I was trying to be, quote, unquote, a good example before you, but one thing I've learned about dieting is that you tend to go on it for a while and then go back to the way it used to be. And so I begin to think about how can I stand before you and talk about being healthy if I don't talk about eating what you would eat for the rest of your life? And so today, with that in mind, I want to bring you a message that's called Top 10 Facts, and facts are what we're here for, facts are our friends, Top 10 Facts About Eating Healthy. Notice it's not about losing weight, it is about eating healthy. So with that in mind, uh, with 10 points, you can imagine I'm going to get on my horse and ride, and we're going to just sort of like tap on these points, but at the end of the day, these are facts that you and I need to take into consideration and walk out of here to think about how to eat healthy. Because here's the deal. For those of us like me who struggle with weight, you know, the answer is to eat healthy. For those of you that don't struggle with weight, then you're in great shape, in great physical shape. The answer is to eat healthy. So I really believe all of us can come together about that. So someone could say, and I, I sort of hear this, even though no one's articulated it to me, I've been in church a long time. Somebody could say, well, is this really something that we need to hear about in church? Well, yes. Uh, in Third John 2, last week we saw this verse, God says, I'm praying all is well with you and that your body is as healthy as I know your soul is. So think about it. Do you hear that balance point? God wants your soul to be healthy, obviously. That's what we usually hear about in church. But God wants our bodies to be healthy. And we'll talk about that today. So here we go. Here, let's count them down. Here's number 10. <laughs> and I think you'll find this first one interesting, but I think it'll help you understand my responsibilities as I stand before you. Number 10, I do not have authority to tell you what you should do. Okay? I, I, I really can't. I cannot say you should go out and do this. You should go out and eat this. I just do not have that kind of authority. There are Christian organizations and denominations who do believe that they can speak to specifics about diet. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I was not Catholic, but I was so thankful that the Catholics ate fish on Friday because that was one of my favorite meals. I loved it in the lunchroom. I didn't grow up Catholic, but I was thankful for them every Friday. Um, some are, and, and I have friends who are Seventh-day Adventists. It's a particular Christian group, and they make dietary restrictions a part of their faith. Now, the interesting thing is there are five blue zones in the world. You know what a blue zone is? A blue zone is a place where there's abnormal longevity. There, there's only one blue zone in the United States. It's in Loma Linda, California. Guess who lives in Loma Linda, California? Seventh-day Adventists. There's a huge collection of them. So although I, I, can't take, I can't teach what they teach, I have to take my hat off to at least what they're doing because it does seem to work. But here's what I want us to understand. I really cannot have the authority to suggest to you what you can eat or what you can't eat. And there are biblical reasons for that. The Bible has a lot to say about not making this a theological issue. This all came down in the first century, and it has to do with the fact that the Jewish congregation and the Gentile congregation were synthesizing into the church. And the Jewish people had been taught from Scripture and from God healthy dietary practices, and it became part of their worship. Now, you have to understand there were Gentiles in the first century who didn't have that background. So as they got together in the church, there was, there was a little bit of an issue, a little headbutting, and a lot of times relationships became broken because of different ways of seeing food. Now, it is into that context that God speaks these verses that keep me on a definite set of rails today. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19, this, is a, this whole section is about 
food and Christians. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for food. So God is doing something here at New Spring. The last thing in the world I want to do is to create conflict over something God says we shouldn't have conflict over. In the message paraphrase, it says, forget about deciding what's right for each other. Now, this particular verse has to do with things that are elective in nature. I mean, here's the deal. If the question is, is it okay to commit adultery? We know the answer to that is no. But there's just a whole lot of life in which the Bible does not say thou shalt or thou shalt not. So food is one of those things. And the Bible says, forget about deciding what's right for each other. Have you ever like run into anybody who's like the food police? You know, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, you know, and all kinds of opinions about that. God said, forget about this. This is not about deciding what's right for you. This is about giving us the tools to do the right thing. Let's read on. Here's what you need to be concerned about, that you don't get in the way of someone else making life more difficult than it already is. That is what has guided my heart. I hope you feel that. That's what's guided my heart as I'm bringing this message. The last thing in the world I want to do whether you're here or in North Auditorium, watching online, watching on television, the last thing I want to do is make your life more difficult than it already is. So please feel that today. The verse goes on to say, if you confuse others by making a big issue over what they eat or don't eat, you're no longer a companion with them in love. God's kingdom isn't a matter of what you put in your stomach, for goodness sake. It's what God does with your life. So here I am, one more time, I just want to say, I'm caught in between the pinchers of on one hand realizing that we have a serious issue on our hands that we need to talk about, and yet at the same time, God's saying, Mark, you're going to have to keep this, you're going to have to keep this in the zone. But here is the most powerful line out of that whole set of scriptures about eating, and it's in Romans 14, 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That is what you need to be when you walk out of here. I mean, I've got friends who are vegan, and they say you should not eat anything other than a vegan diet. I have other friends who say protein is the main thing, and I think you should eat meat all the time. My concern is this. If we look at the science and we look at it objectively, the important thing is to be fully convinced. And I'll tell you why this is important. Americans tend to bounce back and forth between doing anything they want to do and then going on restrictive diets. It's like no one can tell me to do, and then suddenly we want people to tell us everything that we can or can't do. You know what the problem is? There's no, people aren't fully convinced. They're bouncing back and forth. And, and Lord knows that's a real problem for us. We'll talk about fad diets later here today, but do you know the problem with fad dieting? People who go on fad diets tend to gain back everything. Lord knows I've been there. I've lost 5,000 pounds in my lifetime. <laughs> we tend to gain back everything we lost plus more. And, and here's something that we don't hear enough about. Oftentimes, the fat that we lose is subcutaneous fat, which is fat that's under the skin. That's the fat that you can pinch. But the first place where we gain weight back is visceral weight, which is fat around our organs, which really is dangerous. So my concern today is all of us who struggle, or even if you don't struggle with this yet, the important thing is to be fully convinced in your mind that you're on a healthy eating plan for the rest of your life. So first thing is, number 10, fact 10, is I don't have the authority to tell you what you should do. But fact number nine, God does care. There are so many verses in the Bible about food, and we would be wise to go on a journey studying those. But I discover 
Well, this is the first conversation God had with humans. Genesis 1.28, God said, be fruitful and increase in number. God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth. Every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. I find it interesting. First conversation God had with humans was about sex and food. Those are good things. As long as we do them healthily, right? <laughs> and so... God cares. And gluttony, and again, we mentioned many at New Spring grew up in the Catholic faith. One of the things that you would learn as a Catholic when you're working through catechism is that there's seven deadly sins, and one of those sins is gluttony. And that, that is a fact. Gluttony is a sin. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, God talks about a generation of people whose God is their stomach. And so God cares a lot about food. So Fact number 10, I, don't, I can't tell you what you should eat, but fact number nine is God cares a lot about this. And now it goes to fact number eight. It does matter what we eat. Remember last week, we said this series, Healthy, is about being our best, doing our best so that we can give our best. And today, here's the deal. I'm, I'm not bringing this message so that we'll all have the American vision of what thinness is or health is. I'm not concerned that you get in your, like I said last week, like that you get in your swimsuit by July or that you lose weight to get into that dress or that suit before the wedding. That's not my concern. My concern is that you're around and that you're healthy because the world needs you. All of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, we need, we need you here. We need you here today and tomorrow. Now, I understand there are aspects of health that are kind of a wild card. We don't know if we're going to get hit by a bus, and sometimes there are diseases that come out of nowhere, but my prayer is that we will have a healthy lifestyle so that we will be around. Let me show you a couple of pictures. These will show up behind me. I want you to look at the guy on the left. I want, his name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I really believe that Charles Spurgeon is the greatest preacher probably since Paul. Um, he pastored a church in the 1800s in London. It was well, it would probably be what we would call the first megachurch. Charles Spurgeon was way ahead. He was a century ahead of himself. But one of the things I love about Spurgeon was he talked in the common language. He talked where people could understand. And as a result, all London came out to hear him, mostly people that didn't go to church. But it wasn't just that. It was like the whole nation paid attention to him. His sermons were in the London Times. The king and the queen would come out to hear him. They never could build a building large enough to hold the people who came to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. In fact, you had to cross the Thames in order to go to his church. And on Sunday mornings, the cabbies would be lined up deep and yelling out over the bridge to Charlie. He just had a way of talking to people. You know what I do here at New Spring? Saturday before I leave to come to the campus, the last thing I'll do is I'll look up what Charles Spurgeon's sermon was about my text. And to this day, I think if you polled most evangelical preachers and say who was the greatest preacher of the last 500 years, it'd be across the board Charles Spurgeon. But Charles Spurgeon had, <laughs> he had issues, especially in this area of health. And I think we can all look at his picture and say we would wish that maybe he had had a different lifestyle. For one thing, he loved his cigars. He loved smoking cigars, and he loved his sweets, and he died at 57. And for the last few years of his life, he was in terrible health. He made choices that caused his life to end early. The guy on the right, his name is Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody, greatest preacher in the history of the United States. What a great story. <laughs> he, grew up, he grew up without faith. He didn't get theological training. He was a shoe salesman. I mean... 
he was the kind of person everybody would walk right past and not even think about, especially in church. Do you know the first time he applied for church membership, he got turned down? Greatest preacher in American history got turned down by the church, and they said he just wasn't spiritually ready for membership. But he just committed his life to Christ, and his Sunday school teacher said in those days, the world is yet to see what one person can do who's fully devoted to Christ. And D.L. Moody said, I will be that man. Now, ultimately, he would be called the man who shook two countenances for God. I mean, America was never the same. I mean, his impact, his reach was amazing. President Grant took his entire cabinet to hear D.L. Moody preach. But it is said about him that he would slaughter the king's English. His grammar was terrible, but he knew God. And, he, and the thing about him, and this is why I think at, at New Spring, we should really appreciate D.L. Moody because so many of the things that we've thought about in reaching out were things that D.L. Moody was on top of over 100 years ago, almost 150 years ago. For one thing, he realized that kids were left behind, and oftentimes poor kids. And so in the inner city, in the slums of Chicago, he started the first Sunday school. Now, most of us who grew up in churches with Sunday school, Sunday school was before church. But what, what we might not realize was there was a time when Sunday school was for kids who couldn't get into the church. And ultimately, churches realized the wisdom of it and incorporated Sunday schools. But D.L. Moody was sort of the father of this movement. And what he did was he realized that most kids were bored out of their brains in church. And so he just brought in all kind of stuff. Just how, I mean, we have a thing here at New Spring that says, all right, to have fun in church. Well, D.L. Moody was on top of that. He had pony rides. He had all kinds of things. But he reached these kids that nobody was reaching, kids that nobody cared about. And the movement exploded in growth. And out of that, there came to be evangelistic meetings. And then, well, D.L. Moody took the gospel all over the world. I love a lot of things about D.L. Moody. For one thing, he just had a way of sensing what churches were getting wrong. One of the things that he did was he realized that women were not being treated with the understanding that they had spiritual gifts to exercise because all the training institutes were for men. And D.L. Moody started the first institute for training women for spiritual ministry, utilizing them. It's just like the man was brilliant. He went against all the norms. <laughs> when he started his evangelistic crusades, he realized that most of the music was hard to sing. A lot of the old hymns had words that were hard to pronounce. And so he got together with Ira Sankey, who was his music guy, and they just started putting words to sometimes barroom hymns and country songs. In fact, a lot of songs that you know of as old hymns were songs that Moody and Sankey put to everyday songs. And they put the songs in language that people could understand. So when you look at a ministry like New Spring with its outreach to kids and the music that speaks to us in our terms and our times, it all started 150 years ago with D.L. Moody. And yet, you can take one look at his picture and know that D.L. Moody struggled. And he died with congestive heart failure at the age of 62. Now, here's my point. A lot of us today, I, I want to make sure that we don't feel shame or that we don't feel guilt that we struggle with this. It's, it's not that God doesn't love us and it's not that we're very important. I mean, these two guys, I would argue, maybe were the most important two Christians in the last 500 years. And yet they struggle with this. Here's my point. It's not that I say these things to judge them or shame them. They're heroes of mine. I just want to know, what if we had had Spurgeon for another 15 years? Because I'll tell you, he had, he, had, he had the ears of England, and after he died, there was an evangelical drought, drought that happened after him. Moody, he died eight days before the century turned, 
He died eight days before the 1900s came along. You think about all the problems and challenges that America faced in that time. What if Moody had lived another 10 or 15 years? And that's my, my thing today. It's not, about, it's not about us looking trim. It's not about us getting into skinny clothes. It's not about us fitting the American image of glamour. This is all about, this message is about you being here. I want you to be here for a long time. And not only that, I want you to be healthy. And I want you to be able to be the person that God has designed you to be for as long as you possibly can. So it does matter what you eat. And frankly, and again, it's so important for us to realize we do have liberty in these areas. And it's not that if we eat these things that we're a sinner necessarily. It's just that, well, let me read this verse to you. Everything is permissible for me, and that's in the area of food, there's, there's nothing on the buffet line today that you're going to sin by eating. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. You see that balance? Everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Here is an important line in my life. I will not be mastered by anything. See, here's the deal. Many of us, when we hear a message like this, it's like, okay, I know Mark is going to say some things that are truthful, but I just can't handle this. There are certain foods I just can't handle. Well, think about what we're saying. If we're saying that we can't handle it, we're saying it's got authority over me. Now, hey, in the essence of full disclosure, there has always been one food that has had control of my life. I cannot have it in my freezer. If I do, it doesn't matter how much discipline I have for anything else. There's just one food I can't handle. And I'll tell you what it is. It's chocolate ice cream. <laughs> for some reason, that, is, that has been hard for me to handle. And it calls to me. If it's in the freezer. <laughs> and frankly, for much of my life, it's had mastery over me. Now, here's the thing. When I begin to study eating healthy, it's like I begin to think about what I could eat that's healthy. Now, in fact, Mary Alice, she was on stage, she confirmed this. My granddaughter loves chocolate ice cream. For the last six months, I've had chocolate ice cream in my fridge, and I walk past it every day. And I discovered that if I did the right thing, that the wrong thing would not have mastery over me. This is not what we're talking about today. But husbands, let me just tell you something. You will not have a problem with lust if you will make your wife the focus of your attention. One more time. You will not have a problem with lust if you deliberately make your wife the focus of your attention. If, on the other hand, you develop appetites that are unhealthy, you can have the most beautiful wife in the world, the most loving wife in the world, and you're going to have trouble. Now, that's a big issue that we could talk about, but food on a smaller scale can be like that. So many times there are unhealthy foods that get mastery over us, and we develop addictions because we develop appetites for that food, whereas if we would look at the things that are healthy and look at what we can eat as opposed to what we can't eat. So it does matter what we eat. Now, let me go to the darkest place of this message, and we'll get out of it pretty quickly. But I think we all, we're talking facts here. Fact number seven, we need to embrace that we do have a problem in America. The experts talk about the obesity epidemic, and we see it every day. Uh, is it just me, or are the airplane seats getting smaller and Americans getting bigger? Yeah. Uh, and you know what? If you, just want to, if you want to look at this historically, just go to the museum and look at automobile bench seats from the 20s and 30s. Or more so, look at the outfits. You can go to the museum and look at the suits and the dresses that people wore back 100 years ago, and we can see, well... You know how it is. We have value sizing here in America. 
But I'm concerned about the science more than anything else because science tells us every day that things are getting scary in America. Almost 40% of adults are obese. Almost 20% of adolescents, that's what really scares me because science shows us that the earlier one deals with obesity, the bigger challenge it is to beat it. One in five adolescents between 12 and 19 in America are dealing with obesity. One in five kids aged 6 to 11. One in 10 preschoolers are dealing with it. Childhood obesity in the world has increased tenfold in the last four decades and over 70.7%, one more time, over 70.7% of Americans are either overweight or obese. And I'm in that category. So just let's take the pressure off. I'm, I'm in there. 70.7% of us. Now, if indeed 70.7% of Americans are overweight or obese, however we feel about this subject in church, I think we would all agree that we have a problem in America. And the experts tell us that already it's costing us between 190 and $225 billion a year, and that doesn't even count lost work days. And I can see the horizon as baby boomers age, we're looking at this issue breaking the healthcare system in America. But we all know that being overweight can contribute to hypertension, diabetes, circulatory problems. But one of the things that the experts are getting very concerned about is its contribution to cancer deaths. This article is from the Wall Street Journal. You can read it. It was on Tuesday. But Rebecca Siegel, who's the strategic director of surveillance information services for the American Cancer Society, made a statement. Forgive me for breaking a sentence, but the article is about how cancer deaths in America are declining, but all that decline is relational to less cigarette smoking. The other cancers are either flat or increasing. And, and here's what she said, and I find this an interesting statement. She talked about obesity and said, right now we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg because we don't understand yet just how much it contributes to cancer rates. It's frightening to me. Because for the first time, as we look forward, you know, lifespans have been increasing, but for the first time as we look forward, it looks like lifespans are beginning to shrink a little bit. But I'll tell you what I worry more about than lifespans shrinking. I'm concerned about living longer unhealthy. Because with the health treatments that we have today, it allows people to live longer and be unhealthy. So that's a concern. It's a problem. But number six, real quickly, physical appearance is the wrong arena to have this discussion. Because usually whenever we talk about being overweight, it's immediately linked with physical appearance. Two problems with that real quickly, and neither one of these are help, helpful. The first problem is body shaming, and that doesn't work. And on top of it being painful, I believe it adds to anxiety. And, and eating disorders is a complicated topic. It takes someone over my pay grade to discuss it. I just do know that many eating disorders began because of people who were body shamed when they were young. And the idea was, oh, it's all about appearance. And, and that isn't helpful. I, I was reading about Princess Diana. And I know that her death was in the late 90s. And a lot of you probably were not the, around when she was on the scene, but I think most Americans who were on the scene in that day would say that Princess Diana was perhaps one of, if not the most beautiful women in the world. She was beautiful. Not only physically, she was beautiful from the inside, and the whole world loved Diana. Um, this is, I said I wasn't going to preach my opinion, but I could tell you that Charles dude is something else. I, I don't get him. <laughs> don't know why you would go after Camilla if you had Diana at home, but we'll just leave it there. 
But many of you who know Diana's history know that she struggled with an eating disorder for most of her adult life, bulimia. And it began, according to her biographer, Andrew Morton, when there was a, a, an engagement photo taken. And as Charles slipped his hand around Diana's waist, he made a remark about her being kind of plump. And that put her into a cycle, a downward cycle of insecurity. The most beautiful woman in the world, perhaps... But because of body shaming, it went the wrong direction. You see what I'm trying to say? This, this is not a discussion to have in the arena of physical appearance. And God help those of us who are parents and grandparents to communicate to our kids, this is about being healthy. This is not about fitting some photo image. And the second thing that we see happening today is on the other end of the spectrum. Because on one hand, you have body shaming. And as a knee-jerk reaction to that, there's the idea, oh, we're just going to have to accept that... All of us are dealing with this problem of being overweight, and we just have to deal with it. But my concern is that we see that it's about being healthy. So the sixth fact is that this discussion does not belong in the arena of physical appearance. Number five, our culture conspires against us in three ways. First of all, we're getting more sedentary. You know, because of electronic devices today, a lot of kids who would have been out playing, playing sports 20, 30 years ago, are like locked in on some sort of electronic device. And what's happening, we're sitting more. And so when I talk about the other conspiratorial factors from culture, it, this exacerbates the problem. So we're more sedentary. And it's not just kids, it's adults too. And then the second thing is we're always being sold something. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes the food that is being sold to us is probably not healthy. As someone said wisely, there is no broccoli industry. And so we're always being sold something. And I, I don't have any problem with that. I believe in free market and I believe in profit. Those are things that God encourages. But we're always being sold something. And oftentimes what we're being sold is highly processed. And frank, frankly, because of taste reasons, because they want to get you hooked on it, there's a lot of fat and a lot of sugar in it. And then, can we talk about portion sizes? My soul, what has happened? I mean, I, I, I go to a restaurant and order something, and it's like, is this for a family of six? I, I was in my parents' hometown eating at a restaurant that, well, they're all over the place. It's a chain restaurant. And thankfully, now they begin to put the calorie count next to the entree items. And as I got ready to eat, I mean, this, like I say, this is a normal restaurant that we all go to, pretty much. I looked at the calorie counts, and there wasn't hardly a single entree under 1,200 calories. Now, when you think about the daily calorie intake for a woman, it should be around 2,000 calories a man, 2,500. And that's like if you're not trying to lose weight. Man, that one meal is, is practically half the day's calories. And if you add a sugar drink with that, it starts getting close to the edge. So, yeah, portion sizes. In 1955... Did you know that the average McDonald's drink was seven ounces? Today, well, it got up to 42 ounces, and McDonald's felt bad about that, but they pulled it back to 30 ounces. But after all, you can refill your drink as many times as you want to. Portions. How do we get here? You know, as I was prepping for this talk, I was curious about that. How do we get to these insane portion sizes? Do you know there's an answer to that question? And you'll find this interesting, I think. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, fast food industry was like burgeoning and it was becoming more popular. But the problem that the fast food industries recognized that they had on their hands is that Americans would not order two meals. 
because ordering two meals violated their sense of what gluttony is. So they just realized that they had reached a, they had reached a marketing cap, they had, reached a, they had reached an income cap because Americans would not order two meals. Actually, the answer was found by a theater, a guy who owned a group of theaters and managed the concession in, in, in Europe because it was over popcorn. He realized he couldn't sell people two popcorns, so if he started making the popcorn bigger, it wouldn't cost him much more money to put popcorn in there, but he could charge more money for it. It wasn't long till, won't mention the name of the fast food place, but major, major, major fast food place here in the United States hired him away. We just started having these huge packages of French fries. The potatoes didn't cost him much more but Americans would pay more for it. So isn't it interesting that although we would not buy two meals because that seemed like gluttony, we would pay more money if somebody put more French fries, made the hamburger bigger, made the meal bigger, and today we are where we are as it continues to just be more and more insane. So all I'm saying is the the culture conspires against us. Now, let's go to fact number four, because the problem we have here is our culture's answer to our issues is a fad. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, (laughs) Have you ever thought about the commercials in December and the commercials in January? Just think, because we're in January right now and we're seeing it. Or do you ever think about the layout in the grocery store in December, or, or not necessarily grocery store, just, let's just imagine a big department store, chain store. Think about the floor layout of items in December and then the layout in January. Because see, in December, it's, all these commercials are about food and family and, and you just have these soft airbrush commercials and people are getting together and they're eating cake and, and ice cream and uh, high calorie dishes and wine and candy and all these things. It's like, look at this. Isn't this beautiful? This is American family. Then you get in January and the, and the commercials are for diet programs and exercise equipment. The culture is telling us that the answer to the food they've talked us into eating that caused us to gain weight in December is the exercise equipment they're going to sell us in January. Now, here's the deal. If you're over 40 years of age, how many years have you seen that cycle go over and over and over? And you know what we Americans do? We buy the food in December. We buy the exercise equipment in January. And then in July, we're selling the exercise equipment in a garage sale. Now, all I'm trying to say is we need to back away from this. Not that we're, I mean, I don't blame anybody for trying to make a dollar. All I'm saying is the, the culture works against us. It's saying, do these things that will cause you to be unhealthy, but the answer to your situation is a fad diet. Americans love a quick fix. Hey, I've seen the commercials, and I'll be honest with you. Knowing how much I need to lose weight, I watch them because they tell you that a pill can help you lose weight. You see those commercials? I mean, isn't that, isn't that a cool thought? I mean, after all, if you could just buy, what, you could buy health in a pill bottle. And the weird thing that always gets me about those pill commercials is somehow it doesn't just cause these models for these commercials to lose weight. It gives them abs, too. <laughs> Boy, that'd be a pill to take. But you know what? Deep down inside, we know that's a fad. We know that's not real. And we know that the people who do that, who buy those things, they're just being taken advantage of. But the, the probably more common thing that those of us who struggle with weight engage in is dieting. 
Now, by dieting, I don't necessarily mean eating healthy. That, you could use that term, but I'm talking about just this diet where basically you surrender your life over to some program. Do you, okay, do you know the percentage of Americans who lose weight on a diet who keep it off the rest of their life? I'll only need one hand for this. 2%. 2% of Americans who lose weight on a diet don't keep it off. And as we've already talked in this message, oftentimes the, the weight that we gain back, the fat that we gain back is more dangerous than the fat that we lost. Why don't diets work? I've thought about this a lot. Well, first of all, the goal is temporary. You know, I, I'm just telling you what I felt all these years that I've been on diets. I mean, I've been, I've been on the weird stuff, you know, where it's all meat and no carbs, and all carbs and no meat, count the points, count the calories. I even got on a, when Maryland's and I were young, we even got on a protein shake diet. Now, I'm sure they're better today, but I don't know what kind of weapons we're using on our enemies today, but I think if we just use those protein shakes from those days, we would just discourage anybody from harming the United States. <laughs> My problem with dieting throughout all these years is, and this is just making it honest, how can I lose the weight? How can I stay on this long enough to lose the weight so I can go back to eating the way I used to eat before I got on this diet? And there's so many crazy diets. Let me just tell you this. As I was getting ready for this series, and last June as I was thinking about all my years of dieting, I asked myself two questions. And for all of us who go back and forth with fad diets, here are the two questions we need to ask ourselves. If it's not what I would do all the time, then why would I do it for a while? In other words, if I'm just going to get in this weird diet that I know I'm not going to be able to sustain, well, here's the thing. Deep down inside, I don't really believe that that's what would make me healthy. So if it's not something I would do all the time, why do it for a while? Question number two that I ask myself is if I believe something would work all the time, why not do that? You know, we talked last week about closing the inconsistency gap because oftentimes we believe things, but we live a completely different way. And we said if we're going to have good habits and be our best, we have to close the inconsistency gap. So that's what I had to tell myself. If I'm going to truly be healthy, I'm going to ask myself the question, why would I do something temporarily that I don't plan to do the rest of my life? And if I believe something would be effective, why don't I do that? And those are two questions that we all need to ask. Number three. And this is big for me, and I'm going to finish here in just a few minutes. But I want us to know that good science is out there. I'm going to challenge us today to go, go study the science. You know, when I was a kid growing up, and most of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and to this day I have no idea why preachers did this, but it seemed like every, every other sermon I heard when I was a kid was on smoking. Well, what was the point there? I don't know. But it's like every time I went to church, they were going to talk about smoking. And it was so prominent that preachers told smoking jokes. And I'd heard them so many times. Will smoking send you to hell? Nope, just get you to heaven faster. I've heard that one. Will smoking send you to hell? Nope, just make you smell like you've been there. I mean, just, it's crazy. And then the culture got so tired of hearing preachers preach against smoking that they actually began to tell jokes about preachers who preached about smoking. <laughs> my personal favorite was about the preacher that was just so hating smoking that if you saw anybody smoking, he just slapped the cigarette out of their mouth and stomp it in the ground. Every time he did, total stranger, just slapped the cigarette out of their mouth, stomp it on the ground. He died of foot cancer. I mean, so just. <laughs> I haven't heard a sermon on smoking in 50 years. You know why? 
The scientists became the prophets. The scientists begin to tell us what smoking did. And the good thing for us today is there's a lot of good science out there on how to eat healthy. I mean, I got into it. I, I, I wanted to learn what made a person healthy. The important thing, though, is to remember to get science that's objective. It's really important for the science, because here's the thing. You can't just put quotation marks around science and call it science. There's good science, there's bad science. And here's the science that we all need to be worried about is science with industries that have a dog in the race. Mary Alice had a magazine she was reading the other day, and there was an editorial page in this magazine on a food that we would all agree is unhealthy. In fact, this food is known to have a number of carcinogens in it. But this article said that the food really was not a real problem. And she said, this health professional said that it's okay. But what, when, I read the, when I unpacked the article, what happened is she took a narrow slice of the processing and said that processing effect only adds 6% to your likelihood of gaining cancer. That was a bizarre article because I thought, what in the world is going on here? Until I turned the pages and within five pages, I saw two ads for that product. See, the money had affected the science. And it's really important that as we study this, that we get pure science. Um, and by the way, um, again, I'm out of time here, but we talked about cigarettes a moment ago. Mary Alice and I, we love YouTube uh, channel because every once in a while we just get in this nostalgic kick and we want to watch shows that we watched when we were kids in the 60s, you know. And we'll go back and we'll watch the shows. And back then it was legal for uh, television shows to have... Uh, cigarette commercials. In fact, oftentimes cigarette tobacco companies funded the show. Now, the thing that always blows our mind is we'll watch the show, and, and here's this cigarette commercial coming up, and it'll be something like this. Nine out of ten doctors say, smoke this cigarette. That is so insane today. <laughs> but here's the thing. You and I both know as we look back on that historically, the tobacco industry was funding the study. And so when you begin to study this, and this is going to take work, and I'm going to give you the second fact in just a minute. Well, let me go ahead and give it to you now. You're the steward of your health. See, I started this message with I can't tell you what to do, and I shouldn't. But you're a steward of your health. And guys, we need to dive into this. And, and here's the thing. I'm not telling what you, what you should do, and no one here is telling anyone else what they're doing is wrong. We're all going to be stewards, and we're going to encourage each other to do what we are fully persuaded in our own minds so that we don't bounce back and forth. But you and I are stewards of our health. It's not something that we surrender to Madison Avenue. We don't surrender it to the grocery store. We don't surrender it to our next door neighbor. We don't surrender it to the person who's trying to sell us some pill or some fad diet. We are daughters and sons of God, and God has given us stewardship. He has given us management over our health. So number two, fact number two, we're stewards. I love fact number one, and I don't think I've made enough usage of this fact, and I'll close with this. God will help you. For all of us, starting with me, who struggle with eating healthy, I was convicted about this. How many times have I asked God to help me? God, help me. Help me study. Help me learn. Take me to the truth I need to read. Help me to, help me to know the difference when I'm being sold a bill of goods and when I'm being given good advice about my health. And most of all, God, help me when I struggle because many of us deal with food addictions in America. You say, Mark... And <laughs> I probably would have said this if I'd heard this sermon a year ago. That's nice. Agree with you, these are facts. But I can't. I've tried and I've failed. 
let me talk to those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 19.26, Jesus said, humanly speaking, this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. My favorite verse on this theme is in Philippians 4.13. In fact, many times when I sign a Bible or sign a book, I'll put this verse on there. I can do everything through Christ who gives me the strength. For all of us who struggle, and I stand first in line with you, could I say to all of us, with Jesus Christ, you have the power to do anything you need to do. Let's go out and eat healthier. Thanks for being here. God bless.